0: Welcome to the Cloud Architect Podcast, a podcast about cloud technology and the people using it. Welcome, everyone. Nicholas Blank here with my co host, Warren Dutoy. Hello again. For more information on this podcast
1: as well as other shows, browse to our website, thearchitects.cloud.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Kemp Technologies. We chose Kemp as a sponsor based on their amazing product line for the cloud, which includes the Kemp Loadmaster Appliance in the Microsoft Azure Marketplace, as well as Kemp 360 Family. For more information, go to kemptechnologies.com. This podcast is brought to you by NB Consult. NB Consult is a consultancy based in South Africa, the United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. Today, we welcome Joe Bagley to the show by way of introduction joe bagley is vmware's vice president and chief technology officer for EMEA. he helps develop and communicate VMware's strategy and vision with customers and partners using his wealth of experience to help organizations reduce cost and better support users and business needs as part of vmware's office of the cto and its representative in EMEA, joe assists vmware customers in understanding how to use today's advances in technology to deliver real business impact as well as working with them to inform vmware's r d process joe that sounds amazing but why don't you tell us what you do in human <laughs> something we can all yeah. understand please
2: yeah yeah that's the, the non-marketing version so in essence the office of the cto at vmware owns innovation is the best way to think about it so i'm part of a team uh, my boss is Chris Wolf, who's the CTO in the U.S. And then underneath him, there's three of us, one per region. Interestingly, one of my counterparts, uh, Bruce Davey, uh, is Professor Bruce Davey. He's the APJ uh, CTO, and he's, um, he's the guy that essentially invented and wrote the book on MPLS. So it's quite interesting. And there's a whole bunch of other wow. people as well. Um, so actually, you know, what do I do? I get to hang out with some people who are a, an awful lot cleverer than me a lot of the time. Um, And together, we work to make sure that VMware is recognized as one of the most, or continues to be recognized as one of the most innovative companies in the industry. And we regularly get ranked in the top four or five, you know, um, up there with some companies you may have heard of, like Tesla and Facebook and stuff. Um, And my job really is to, I suppose, drive that, drive that within our field. And I spend a lot of my time with customers, a lot of my time talking to customers. And sometimes, and Nick will know this one, I'm, I'm known as the chief talking officer as opposed to the chief technology officer. Um, So, yeah, it's it's an interesting, exciting job. I mean, the office of the CTO isn't quite what a lot of people think it is. It's not some magical world full of unicorns and rainbows where everything's lovely. But it's a place where um, the the magic happens at VMware for sure. And I'm I'm the representative of that in EMEA.
0: It sounds amazing. It sounds like like a dream job.
2: It could be. It's a dream job at some times. And then there's other times when you're in an airport at 4 a.m. that it's really not a dream job. <laughs> so, oh, <yeah>. you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there's ups and downs. Real, but to, Yeah, there's ups and downs. But to be honest, one of the biggest things we like here at VMware is the culture. The culture at VMware is very, very special. We um we have some great people that work here and and some fantastically bright people as well. So it's it's one of the highlights of my year is we have a concert uh, a conference coming up, it's in May called Radio, which is our R and D Innovation Offsite, which is kind of the um the, the science fair for for internal R and D folks at VMware, and there's about ten thousand R and D people at VMware, and the top fifteen hundred wow. submit their papers wow. and ideas and posters, and we get together for three or four days in San Francisco and literally geek out. And we've had some amazing speakers there before, people like uh, Adam from MythBusters and some amazing innovators, and we've had wow. some top some of the top technologists as well there, such as Eric Brewer from Google, etc., come and talk to us. So it's it's an amazing place. As, as, as techies, you'll appreciate, you know. You can imagine what, what goes on in those three days. It's kind of the future of the company. And, you know, stuff I saw at radio four or five years ago is now in our products. And so that's the exciting thing for me.
1: Well, I mean, when you look at events like VMworld, I mean, they're legendary. I mean, everybody talks about VMworld as being one of the highlights of the year. And it sometimes yeah. puts, it puts Ignite to, Ignite to shame sometimes.
2: <laughs> I think I, the 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 one for me. I mean, I grew up as, as as Nick well knows. I I grew up in a very Microsofty world, being obviously spending ten mm. years at Quest, where I, you know, where I work with Nick, and and before that too in the nineties when you know tech ed was the thing, and um and we all remember tech ed and collected the bags, and then sort of whilst I was at Quest, I suddenly noticed that VMworld was becoming the thing, and now to go to VMworld and be the person that stands on stage as I did in. California in front of 23,000 people and and present is something kind of special and and it's becoming this sort of focal. It's the it's becoming an infrastructure conference because you go there and, and everyone's there, and you know, from every single company you can imagine, our competitors and partners, and you know, most of our partners are competitors as well and um, in some way. Um, in an amazing get together, I suppose. And so we have you know in excess of twenty, twenty-five thousand people in the states. The Euro, the European one now is about fifteen thousand people, and then we do wow. sort of smaller versions across the media called V forums, which are uh, can be up to ten thousand people. So they're big. It's it's a big community.
0: So, Joe, you've done a little bit more than 23,000 people. The other day, I saw you were talking in front of 90 million people. And that's not a mistake. There was 90 million people. And why don't you tell us yeah. about that? And how how did that even happen?
2: Well, so... <laughs> um... Yeah, I obviously living in the UK I'm I'm I grew up with the BBC, but there's a lot of people around the world that grew up with the BBC too. So to, to be on the BBC is something quite special. And um it, it really came I that's the second time I've now been on the the um, World Business Report uh, with um Aaron Hazelhurst, who's a who's a um should we say energetic and enthusiastic individual to, to work with and mm. talk with. And yeah, it, it's become the, the case now that sometimes he says, you know, I've heard this new buzzwords, gets in contact with me and says, can you come in and, and explain it in simple terms to my viewers? And I do spend a lot of my time explaining complicated things in simple ways. So, yeah, I, I remember the first time I went to the BBC, I, I, I thought I was going to do a recording um, for some little thing they were going to do on the website. This is last year. So I turned up fully expecting to go into a little room, do a little recording, and I turn up and Aaron's there and he sort of says, oh, no, no, we're live in 10 minutes in front of 90 million people. And you can I'm imagine, I'm right. like, oh, okay, that's a bit different to the little recording for the web I thought I was going to do. Um, but it, it, it's fun. And um, I think the total reach now is something like 400 million once they do the segments and add it all up. The funniest thing is it's not available to watch in the UK. It's the only place you can't <laughs> see it. <laughs> that's weird. Do you so like it my used mom it? and my well, I, yeah, I, to be fair, it, it's really funny, actually, because, you know, you don't want to sound arrogant, but when you're there, you're just in a room with another guy and there's some cameras around and you've got no idea who's on the other side. It could be five people. It could be 10. One of the, yeah. it could be 90 million. Um, one of the things that I've always taken away from me since my very early days of sort of presenting, which actually started at Quest, was I in my mind, I'm always trying to explain it to my mother. I'm trying to talk mm. to my mum about these things and explain it to her or to now to my wife or to my kids, you know and so if you go on and and, and do it that way then it it tends to be fairly easy and people like that and want to have you back
0: joe i love the analogy that you used and for for our guests who haven't heard what you were talking about you were talking about edge computing (laughs) and making a case for edge computing and using a personal assistant as an example of why edge should even be relevant
2: yeah i think so you know we've had this whole thing where everyone says oh we're all going to go to cloud right everything's going to cloud we're all going to end up in cloud and if you know i I launched cloud camp in the uk nearly eight nine years ago now i think um and back then all the analysts were telling us by 2015 everything will be in the cloud and we'll all be dead i remember going to some of the early azure stuff when i was working at quest back in the day when we sort of before it became a real thing in copenhagen when we were talking about it and the world was all going to end up in 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 the cloud by 2015 well the reality is that's not happened And actually, what's happening now is that the workloads that people are looking for are becoming more and more complicated. And so a really good example is why we need edges because networks aren't fast enough. It's the the simple rule here, because if you think about it, you have something like um, Alexa or Google Home, or um, I'm worried now because it's next to me. So it's going to wake up and there you go. (laughs) Maybe I've no idea what Alexa is now talking to me back about. Let me turn her off. That's
1: brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> well that's done, Alexa. That's hilarious, isn't
2: it? Right. I'm going <laughs> to well mute done. her. There we go. I've now muted Alexa. Um, yeah, so you, you talk to something like Alexa, and you say, turn off my kitchen lights. And you turn off the kitchen lights, And but it takes six seconds, right? Now, in your house, you don't care, because six seconds is like, well, that's still quicker than for me getting off my chair and flicking the switch on the wall. So, hey, cool, I didn't have to mm-hmm. get off my seat. But what's actually happening in the background is obviously you're talking to Alexa, the voice that you've just done is being sent up to the cloud, it's being translated, it's being worked into text, that's then being formed through some NLP, which then goes to an API, and yada, 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 eventually comes back to Philips Hue um, base unit, which then turns the light off, and that's fine. I don't mind that, that's cool. However, I also drive a Tesla, and the Tesla has autonomous driving. And what I don't want is when I'm doing autopilot on the highway and a car pulls out in front of me, as happens all the time, um, it then has to talk to a computer over the internet and wait six seconds to get the answer back that maybe it should think about breaking. And so that's why a Tesla has a thing called an NVIDIA drive PX2 in it with 150 MacBook Pros worth of processor. And so as we get more and more use cases, closer and closer to the edge, uh, we're seeing edge computing become more and more important, whether it's putting compute into police cars and helicopters, whether it's putting it into retail, um, a lot of it's now coming from augmented reality. I mean if you think about augmented reality and how that works, if you think about the um the Microsoft mixed reality, what you're looking at there is with HoloLens, you need a lot of processing locally because you can't wait for it to talk up to a cloud to overlay information on the on your glasses that are looking things in real time. They've got to happen instantly. Yes. Um so you're going to see as we look at and to, to step out of, you know, the, the explaining it to my mum and explaining it more to a, a more technical audience. Uh, what you're going to see is an evolution now of, of sort of application architectures and infrastructure support that stretches out towards the edge. So now there's more talk about what we're hearing as nano data centers and PICO data centers. And what we're what we're talking about there is very, very small devices. How do I get an entire data center like stack and run it on three Intel Nooks, for example? or one Intel Nook, and what runs at that edge there? And in some cases, this is where containers are becoming exciting, because maybe I can just spin up ephemeral containers at the edge to deal with things. So one of the examples I give is um, telcos are now going through this revolution called NFV, where they're discovering what everyone else in the world discovered 10 years ago, that virtualization of, of workloads is quite a cool thing and has lots of benefits. <laughs> and um, so so they're now virtualizing all what, the, what, the, what originally used to run as, as hardware. So all those very hardware-specific components in, in the cell towers, for example, are being replaced by x86 servers running those functions as virtual machines. And you know, we, we do that for a lot of the large telcos globally. And you'll probably find that a lot of the voice calls that you do, whichever country you live in, actually go somewhere over a VMware hypervisor on the back end in one of these things. Now, If you look at it that way great but if you now look at it that i've got a distributed cloud based on x86 i can push workloads closer to the edge so now as a telco instead of just having some kit that does my network stuff i've now got some x86 processes and some storage really close to interesting things so maybe i could turn around to a betting company and i could say to the betting company Would you like to spin up the front end of your web servers, maybe as a container service because they're ephemeral? Would you like to spin those up uh, in all the cell towers next to the major football stadiums in this country for every Saturday afternoon? So your website is the fastest responding website for football fans when they go to see their teams play. That suddenly is a differentiator on both sides and there's money happens there. And so you're starting to see more and more of these use cases. So it's not just about, you know, collecting from sensors and IoT. Ultimately, you'll start to see as application types change and we start to do even functions as a service at the Edge and more, which is some of the stuff we're doing with AWS Greengrass and some of the things we've done with our our recent open source projects um, are definitely heading down those lines. So Edge is becoming very exciting. But yes, I was on the BBC trying to simplify that for 90 million people as to why Edge might be happening to them.
0: (laughs) That that's, is amazing.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, and that actually took took me the way I wanted to go. Really, I mean, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, I was like, containers are it now. What are your views on containers? But then there's also something else I saw, which is um, VMware Dispatch, and yeah. uh, there was a there was a nice tweet there that said, uh, "This is clearly Joe Bagley's work, and it's been open, <laughs> it's been open sourced." So, um, tell yeah, me yeah. the decisions behind that. Um, a framework to deploy one and decision. manage serverless style applications for free.
2: Yeah, that's cool. So it's really I cool. Think...
1: <laughs> so was it was it you? <laughs> it was you, right? Well,
2: I, I'm not going to claim all that. I'm not going to claim all the all the um all the glory for that with some very clever guys in Octo. But um, the reason that Ant Stanley made that tweet is because Ant and I go back a long way, and he's the he's he the Serbliss guy. He's behind Jeff Kong for another stuff. So he's a friend of mine. So he and I've been banging on about service for a while. But I think in the context of that, one, one of the things is open sourcing. I mean, open sourcing, it makes a lot of sense nowadays. In, in a lot of cases, there's certain use cases where to open source software um, is the only way to do things. And we now have a chief open source officer in Dirk Hoendahl, who's, you know, very well known in the Linux community, uh, now works at VMware and is almost driving much more open source culture through VMware. I think uh, there's a lot of companies that claim to do open source, but it's open source in a community of one. So it's not really open source. And I think, you know, for us, it's it's a good way to explore areas and see where areas might go too. So, you know, doing something like that, you know, the the, the point is that a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the growing communities, OpenWISC, OpenFAS, et cetera, are all open source as well. And don't forget, we've got some history here because Cloud Foundry was something that started at VMware in 2011. You know, it was one of the reasons I joined the work that Mark and Derek were doing. And, and building Cloud Foundry, which then went on to become, you know, the supported version with Pivotal Cloud Foundry. So, you know, doing things in open source, doing things in containers, is is very much in our DNA at VMware. So when you know LXC pops up and Docker pops up, we're like, well, hey, we've been doing containers for quite a while. And it comes from this view that um what you're seeing is a lot of people seem to think that one technology replaces another because everyone lives in this world where you know mp3s replace cds and flat screen tvs replaced crts and there's a new technology come and you take the old one you throw it out what's happening in it is not that you're hearing new ways of doing things so you're hearing now serverless your functions as a service you're hearing um containers as a service and then you know someone says well containers will they replace vms and will functions as a service replace paas and is paas a competitor to containers as a service and actually when you get down to it what they're all doing is providing an increased level of choice for the best place of execution for that activity you need to do in your application architecture so whereas before maybe the answer was go build a big oracle database run WebSphere, job done and you were making compromises at pretty much every stage with that. Now, when you're looking at architecting a very complex project, you might find some of the activity that goes on in that architecture requires functions as a service. Maybe the bit that reads from IoT sensors. And that's where you'll probably be using dispatch or something like that to, to run and and build that architecture out. And, and that may even be at the edge. But that's in turn maybe writing to a SQL database that's sitting on a Windows iaaS server. And then you've got some containers running somewhere in another in maybe in a Kubernetes, pivotal you know, container service or whatever, that uh, there's an application written there that does assessment and you know calculations, whatever it is, on the data that's being written to that database and maybe writing it back down. To the SQL database. And then maybe there's a path sitting there, maybe Azure is coming and reading from that database, or maybe Cloud Foundry or whatever, that's then providing some amazing dashboards to someone on their mobile phone that is in management so they can see you know, how many widgets are in the factory that the IoT thing's reading. So as we look forward, there's no one replacing the other. The view is that. All of these activities are going to happen and there's probably going to be further stratification. You know, you may argue as fast you're getting down to the limit in terms of functions as a service, but maybe there's a layer beneath that. We don't know. As, As new things become possible, people try to do new things. So I take issue with people that say one of these is going to replace everything else. I think what happens is they're all going to run with each other. And then when you actually look at the architecture stack, nearly all containers run in VMs. And they mm-hmm. may be running VMs today, but maybe they'll run natively in hypervisors going forward. And that's something that we're looking at and with feature-inventory containers. There's the possibility to almost natively support them there, but we may even take the VM bit out of it and have the container running natively on the on the, on the the hypervisor. And it's the same when we look at other workloads that come along. So, you know, I, I it's a very long answer to your question. No, um, not at all. I mean, at the end of I've the day, I completely
1: agree with you that certain technologies exist because of other technologies before them. And so essentially, yeah. you know, uh, containers, wouldn't necessarily exist if it wasn't for virtualization in the first place. So the idea is that they augment each other.
2: Yeah, I- entirely. Now, you could argue, I mean, containers have been around for a long time. It's it's MVS basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, you know... It's um, all manner of of old school technology, arguably terminal server is containers in the way that you're basically sharing an operating system if you want to look at it that way. But I think what happens is people are are finding places for these activities, for these technologies to properly support an activity or they're looking to do an activity in a particular way. And so when I go, oh, wouldn't it be cool if and then they they get that and it starts to make sense. So I think you're going to see more and more of that. I think that provides a challenge, though, for both what we'd call application architects and also IT departments infrastructure teams operations teams or whatever because they're now going to have to look at how they can support that activity for their customer for their customers be they you know the internal developers the application teams or whatever. And so now when you're looking, you, someone's got a choice when they're looking to do a particular activity in architecture, whether they run it in a VM, whether they run it in a container, so IaaS or CAS, whether they put it straight onto a PaaS like Azure or Cloud Foundry, whether they do it in a FaaS, like you know multiples that are popping up now, including some of the AWS Lambda, or whether they just do it in SaaS. And at the same time, they've got a choice there. It's not between five different ways. There's actually 10 because you've got an on and off premises choice of all of those. And in some cases, on premises is going to make sense and off premises are going to make sense for others. And so, you know, actually, there's never been a better time to build an application. There's never been more choice. But actually, with more choice comes uh, compromises, maybe in terms of how and where. And so it's, it's a very, very tricky time.
1: With great power comes great responsibility.
2: Definitely. And what you don't want to do is suddenly realize that for one component of your application stack, you've locked yourself into something or you've picked a dead end technology that's very difficult to get out. And don't forget, lock in is all about how much it costs to get out of somewhere. Right. If I if I said it was five bucks to get out your front door, you'd be like a bit upset, but you'd go, okay, fine. If I said it was five hundred thousand bucks, you'd feel locked in. And I think that's the difference is that when people talk about lock in, it's very much, you know, how much did it cost me to get off this to something else? And so a lot of people will take that lock in, um, because of the value they get out of it, whatever that technology is. I mean, look, we're all locked into x86 ultimately. Right. So, or we're all locked into TCP IP in a way, but there's a lot of value in that because the community around it. So, you know, there's compromises and you say with, you need to be careful what we're choosing, where we put it.
0: Definitely. I'd like to, to go down a little road there and it's, it's a, a two part question and it's going to end up in a, in a very potentially esoteric topic, but, I'll, I'll start the question with you and I started having a a relatively public discussion on Facebook when I asked you, Joe, in the light that we are going to get <laughs> a data center in the bottom end of the Earth in South Africa, where frankly we felt forgotten by the technology gods, and we're finally getting not one but two vendors putting down hyperscale data centers, and your response was like, Yeah, well and and I'd, I'd love it if you could unpack that a little bit in the context of the entire hype of the industry t- in cloud seems to be going towards what are the hyperscale data center providers doing and you were just short of r- righteously indignified about that do you want to tell us why i
1: can't hear nick
2: Nick, Nick, we we didn't get the question.
1: While Nick's busy sorting his stuff out, there, I think I I, I ran ran around your your Twitter feed. Uh, Tell me about date with with Kylo. Um, That looks pretty interesting.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so that's just every year we run a a sort of thank you for our partners and for our our customers. We show the latest Star Wars film in a private screening. That's So, so awesome, and you know. For me, it's, it's the ultimate geek thing to do. We do a lot of geek things. I like to drive a lot of geek things. And so brilliant. yeah, that's one of them. The other one is one of the guys that works for us. In fact, he runs my cloud native practice in mirror, It's a guy called Ed Hoppit who is also the current reigning Robot Wars world champion.
1: Wow.
2: Um, I watched that so, on Discovery. Yeah, well, so if you watch Robot Wars, the British Robot Wars, yeah, he's Storm 2. Um, wow, okay. So I, I, I got the chance. We did a bit of sponsorship there. We've been involved in that. So we run Robot Wars events for our customers. And I was actually... Uh, I went up to the, the filming of the, one of the, the season they were in a couple of years ago, which was quite fun because I'm hiding in the background trying not to be caught on camera. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's good fun. And so, yeah, we, we have a lot of fun stuff we do. And so that's where Date With Kylo came from. It was just one of those fun things.
1: That's so great. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, uh, um, Microsoft here did something similar where they uh, gave everybody tickets to the new Star Wars movie sort of the night before and um, as yeah. part of like a an Azure push so basically they, they gave us a bunch of free credits and they said uh, you can have the free credit as long as you come to the movie with us so it was actually quite cool yeah um, yeah. and okay. you know what okay. while, while we're on the discussion of Azure what are your thoughts <laughs> Azure and VMware on what and how the Azure and VMware and how they work together or how Microsoft is trying to get them to work together so well um, you know well, with live migrations and those kinds of things
2: yeah, so, I mean, to understand that, I want to sort of tell you a little bit of a longer story, but I'll get back and it'll yeah, make sense. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love way, that. that makes it. So, th- to understand VMware's vision uh, around cloud is very much to to almost look upon what we're building here with um, our virtualization of, of uh, compute with ESX and vSphere, as you know it, uh, with vSAN and NSX for storage and networking, you put yeah. those together, you get what we kind of call an operating system for data centers. For sure. So, which is called VMware Cloud Foundation, which is that piece that sits across the top of, you know, a whole bunch of different hardware from a bunch of different manufacturers and, in fact, sits across multiple data centers but allows yes. you one platform to do that on, right? So which is incredible for us,
1: we've... in its own right. It's yeah. It's incredible,
2: and, yeah. And, and that's essentially what I've been part of the team here building for the last you know, seven years or so since I joined. And this, I'm not going to claim it was me, but, you know, that's what we've been building here is this, this, this concept of this operating system for data centers. So, you know, all in software in the hypervisor now is the networking storage and compute. So... The next thing is to look northbound from that layer and say, okay, well, what can we run on this? Well, yes, we can run VMs, but you can run containers as well. And so now it's becoming a little bit more flexible and we'll look to what more we can run, you know, almost natively on top of that, and obviously you can drop a PaaS on it and various other different things. You know, you can go and drop Cloud Foundry on it, the open source PaaS, or pretty much anything else you like. In fact, anything that will run in a VM. And don't forget, we go back to DOS 6.2. So- um, And then you, know, you go and you slap
1: support. software-defined networking in the middle. Yeah. yeah that's,
2: well, that's, that's, so that's what NSX is. It's yeah. not, it's actually part of what we're doing here. So yeah. that software defined networking is right there in the core. So yeah. if you think about it, one of the things is people go, well, I'm running windows 2000, I can't update it for various reasons. Uh, but I need to secure it. I can go, well, put it in a VM and then I can wrap NSX around it. I can put yeah. a firewall around. It. I can, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do there that are quite cool. So you think about it in that context and then I go, okay, fine. Well, if I can get that same operating system running in my cloud provider, that I'm running on premises, I can vMotion my machines live while they're running from my data center to my cloud provider and back again, right? For sure. And you go, well, yeah. And so that's essentially what we're doing. So we stood up VMware Cloud on AWS, which is um, Amazon provide us with bare metal and we sta- we VMware stand up and build our full native stack on their service. It's actually elastic bare metal. It, it's created and deployed by on demand so a customer can go and run their virtual machines in a, in an amazon data center but it's part of this game where they can move them there but maybe take access to amazon services but if they wanted to they could move them back out because they're still vmware cloud vms yeah. and at the same time we've got four thousand four hundred and fifty something other VMware cloud provider partners. And that's where the conversation with Nick came in. I see. Was, you know, talking about, oh, well, finally we have the cloud coming to South Africa. And I was like, well, I've got a whole bunch, at least 48 of them, that are already running
0: yeah. clouds
2: in South Africa. And, and you know, already. and some of them, and, and you name them, they're all the big names in in, in tech in, in South Africa, like Zaweb and others, right? For sure, for sure. And Vodacom and NTN are all running public clouds using, um, using VMware. And so, and actually it's a cloud where you go, well, if they're all running it and it's some kind of race to the bottom is that you can prove the, you know, provide the, the cheapest VM, why would they bother? And actually that's you know, you kind of answer your question there because the differentiation is in location. Because why did people choose them before? Well, because they were based in South Africa. And maybe the service level they got was better. Because you know, they've got a relationship with that provider and that provider gives them a better response time, or maybe better guarantees in terms of SLAs or, or whatever it is. Or maybe they've got a particular special we have cloud provider partners, for example, in the UK, there's one called UK Cloud that does special government compliant to various levels of security, public clouds. That are dedicated for them they do the same for um health and other things so again you're getting you know regional specific clouds and even vertical specific clouds focused on the needs from both the regulation or response time or whatever it is for those particular people so people are prepared to pay different levels for for different levels of service i suppose for sure and so you know he says finally the clouds coming to south africa i was like well it's been there for several years it's just yeah. That cloud hasn't, <laughs> I suppose, if that makes sense.
1: No, I get you. So, I, get you. I guess I see, where the, I, see, I see where that discussion went. <laughs> okay. But, uh, so but then, hang
0: on. Th- there's a greater question there. Yeah. And the question is, there's a difference between infrastructure cloud and what the the hyperscale vendors are doing in terms of breadth of offering, surely.
2: Well, I'm blessed that you called me Shirley. But um, the, <laughs> uh, I th- so, to be honest, I think... It depends what you mean by breadth in terms of you're talking about depth of stack. So you're talking about offering containers as a service, database as a service, platform as a service, all those other different yep. things on top, right? And that's exactly the same. So these other cloud providers can provide that too. In fact, they can provide more choice. So we have we have providers that are standing up pivotal container service, which is an exact same central. It's a like for like build of Google's container engine, GKE. All right, but we're providing it so people can do it on-premises and run it in the public cloud. So but again,
0: that's an infrastructure derivative. What about if we take a, a pure platform service like um, AI? How do you yeah. compete in that kind of a world where you need a ridiculous amount of compute to be able to hold a candle to, for example, and, and I'm using this as an example because we are talking about image recognition this afternoon in the office, mm-hmm. what Microsoft is doing with cognitive in uh AI and Azure
2: so what So, hit there's, there's two things to think about there. people ask me who's gonna win the hyperspell cloud wars I will give you one answer it is those that provide the biggest and most easy to use AI platform full stop right because that's what's actually gonna win the cloud wars I believe mm-hmm. okay now in that particular sense you're talking about to a point in a large case, a lot of those are very edge cases of cloud usage. And what I find is we get involved in a lot of AI and ML discussions. And what we're talking about with a lot of people is a lot of the AI talk is what I call the 0.1% of AI, right? Which is what you just mentioned, which is the big Mm -hmm. stuff. Ooh, wow. Shiny. When in fact, the other 99.9% of AI is actually where most of the action is going to be. And that's going to be subsets of AI running you know, derivatives of AI engines that have been built from ML that's done by a company and maybe running them all the way out to the edge. So mm-hmm. big data sets are very important and large companies can do big data sets. We do have cloud providers that have incredibly huge data centers running large amounts of compute. Uh, We have them for bioinformatics. So the European Bioinformatics Institute that's doing human genome research is doing that on a cloud that they've built with specialized stuff. We now also have some of our cloud providers providing GPU clouds and other clouds dedicated to different workloads. So, yeah... there's a certain point where someone's not going to catch the super hyperscale of Google, for example, right, in terms of the number of data centers they've got and the economies of scale they've got. And likewise, you could say that for Amazon and likewise, you could say that for Microsoft. And so, yes, I agree with you there that, yes, there's going to be cases where you want to go and do that, but it's not right i do everything. So maybe what I might do is I might say, okay, fine, well, in my architecture, there's a point in this where I do image recognition. So for that, I'm going to go off to Azure and call image recognition and use their amazing, mm-hmm. super scalable image recognition sources. But then I'm going to pull that back down to a local data center where it's actually going to do something else because that makes more sense in what I'm doing or whatever. You know, So it, it's like I said right at the start, no one of these is going to be the answer to everything. They're going to be breadth of offering and more and more choices of ways of doing things.
0: So what can I do today with a VMware stack and AI and ML?
2: Depends on whoever you're dealing with has put that on top of that. Has put on top of okay. that. Does that make sense? So we're the platform yes. for other people to place. So you would have to go and talk to the cloud providers some of which may offer specialized AI just for your industry that you didn't realize before rather than the generalized AI you might get from a hyperscale provider. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it allows for slightly more vertical or niche focused plays in this space. And so you might find someone that's doing, and we have got, we've got people that do specific um, offerings on their public clouds as a partner for financial services around market modeling, et cetera, et cetera, using AI AI engines that they've built. Um, So I think, yeah, we as VMware don't offer those services, but we provide a platform for everyone else to build them.
0: I'd love to get your opinion, Joe, on mm-hmm. an, an AI topic. And yeah. uh, there's a, um, uh, for, for those who haven't gone down the road of AI and, and don't necessarily know the distinctions on the three levels of, of AI and, and AI caliber, there's a, a blog post that I'm going to preface this all with, which you can find on wait, but which is a, the human introduction to hmm. uh, AI and why there's concerns that ai will ultimately kill us what that has to do with nanotechnology and why do we care about things like the fermi paradox in relation to ai and while that sounds really complicated effectively (laughs) uh, the greatest question that i think we're wrestling with is humankind and to be fair, Joe, you have context here as a technology vendor that enables a lot of the stuff for people to run mm-hmm. these type of things. What is your opinion on AI and where AI is going and what people are so scared of?
2: So that was the other topic that I was on the BBC talking about. <laughs> Specifically, Aaron was asking me in question to the response that Putin said the, company, the country that has the best AI will be the country that is the most powerful. Yeah. Um, I think the, the one thing to understand in my context of AI is that we're, we're a bit late. So there's, 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 there, if you look at all the top technologists in the world, from Elon Musk through to Bezos and everyone else in between, and I can't remember who's at what end of what, that you go from it's going to be awesome, amazing and shiny and, and brilliant to, oh, my God, we're all going to die, right? Hmm. And there's there's shades of gray between those. as you know People go from one way to the other. Uh, personally, I'm excited about the potential of AI, but I'm also scared about AI that is unleashed at speeds and, and um, with power that you don't understand. So in some ways, there's a great thing to do with AI. So if you look at it from a medical research perspective, I think it has phenomenal potential when you're using machine learning in association with AI. So, and this is people often conflate machine learning and AI into one topic, by the way, and they're very different disciplines. So if you look at um, the concept of when you go see a doctor, Okay. Typically you'll go. So you'll be sent to go see a specialist and you remember you go to see the specialist and the specialist is the special guy. So let's just say you've got cancer and you're going to go and see the oncologist who's a specialist. Now the oncologist is only a guy who's read the most in his field as far as most other people can see. Right. And that's basically it. And so if you think about how many oncology papers, so this is peer reviewed oncology papers are released a year. It's in the thousands. So do you honestly think that one guy that you go and see is reading all those thousands of papers every year? He isn't. Mm -hmm. And whereas if I get a machine to read all those papers with some learning in that, that I can then apply an AI engine onto, hopefully what I'll find is instead of going to see this guy and he'll go, well, you know, I think you've got X, what I'll do is a machine will look at me and go, well, yeah, there was one guy in Lithuania in 1937 that had exactly the same symptoms as you and this is what happened and blah 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 and this is how they fixed it and so i think going forward in medical research you're going to get more and more of the case of um, it's a computer to diagnose you but a a human to hold your hand is the best way to think about it right and that's where i think a lot of the, the care is going to go my father's just had major surgery that was done all entirely robotically, which was amazing. Wow. You know, and he incredible. had surgery done that, that was not possible five years ago. I've wow. got a neighbor that uses, and this is not AI, but I've got a neighbor that actually his job is remote diagnostic radiography. And so during the Gulf War, or during um, yeah, Afghanistan, I'd be around his house and he'd have to disappear off into his shed because some soldier had been brought into an operating theatre in Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. And this guy was remote diagnosing him and he was the best radiolog- radiographer in the world.
0: That's now,
2: amazing.
0: That's and incredible. that was cool,
2: right? So, you know, if you make it back to Camp Bastion in Afghanistan, you're getting the best care there is. Now, think about that now if you take his brain and you say, OK, well, it's AI that now mm. you've got the ability for that radiography to happen locally at incredible speed you know everywhere for everyone and ultimately you can get towards the you know star trek scanner <laughs> i suppose is the yes. way you think about it right so that's one way and for me that absolutely excites me it utterly excites me about the possibilities in medical research that we can get to with what we're doing here and i'm involved with what we're doing at european biomatics institute and other places it's very cool you flip that to the other side you go and see what Boston Dynamics are doing with their jumping robots and stuff. And there was one recently where they showed the the biped robot that's, you know, sort of running along a little bit and jumps over boxes and things. And everyone's seen it, it was all shared at the end of last year. We've by Facebook mm-hmm. a million people, right? That's all quite cool. And you go, that's interesting. Until you realize it it could theoretically in the future be doing that so fast, you can't see it. Yeah. And that's when to me, it gets scary. Because when you're, you know, thinking in a combat text, and I got a small military history, you know, and you think of oh, there's robots coming from the other side of the field, like in Terminator, and they're just mm. walking across, like you know, automatons, and I can shoot them with my gun. That's not what it's going to be like. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it's, it's it's these two extremes, and so you know, you come back to Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics and all of that kind of thing about not harming humans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I'm I'm greatly scared about not what AI can do, but what humans will do with AI. And then the last thing, and this is actually becoming an emergent technology, is AI, AI psychology. And it's actually an area of research within VMware and some other places that I'm working with. In that, if you think now, the next stage really that we're going through with AI is AI coding itself. Okay, yeah. that's essentially what ML is and neural networks. And when you get to DNNs, that's what they're actually doing is they're kind of building their own pathways, coding themselves. And what you actually do is you see you give it a black box. That was originally started by to...
1: Alan Turing, wasn't it, I think? It yeah. Didn't... Alan Turing was the first one to do the psychology of, of, of a machine.
2: Yeah, I think, but it's it, it's more than that in that what we're going to have to do is is – Computers are going to be writing code faster than humans could ever do so. They'll be right. writing the code for themselves at a rate that no one will ever know. How will we debug that? We'll need AI to debug AI. We'll need wow. psychologists to work out what the AI has done to itself. Mm-hmm. You know, so so what what is this AI doing now? What is this AI programmed to do? Because up to this point, I know what the AI is programmed to do because I programmed it, right? To an extent. Yeah. And I set the boundaries. But in future, what's it learned? What's it thought? And there's two things here. One is control but two is unbelievable insight mm. because if you look at that and think oh well, it's learned something in a way that i'd never thought of before because no one would ever look at it that way only a machine with its own particular you know prerequisites would would and predisposition would, would think in that way so again i think there's an excitement there but there's a whole new field of, of machine psychology going to come up which is going to be re- and, and uh, psychology is the best term i've got for it now because it's looking at someone's brain right but, you know it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of that thinking We've gone down a rat hole here on AI, but I think it's 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 something that you know myself and my friends at VMware sit around and talk about quite a lot. Much like quantum computing, which is proving to be interesting. and I know Microsoft to be doing a whole bunch in quantum computing, which is great, and we've been watching that with with um, great excitement.
0: So, talking of excitement, do you want to yep. let us know in terms of um, roadmap and VMware, and it doesn't have to be VMware? What are the things? that you are super excited about in terms of things that are coming out that you're allowed to talk about in terms (laughs) of your technology stack, someone else's, maybe you're doing a a partnership with someone. What what is it that Joe is super excited about?
2: Okay, so massively long-term was what I just mentioned, quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my, my interest in quantum computing is the fact that quantum computing will destroy all crypto as we know it. So wow. what happens next after that? So most most of crypto as we know it today is built on obfuscation due to calculation, right? Mm-hmm. But if you've got quantum computers that can do those calculations, wow! Um, so that's very exciting for me. Um, but let's come back to something a bit more realistic. And I talked about it at the start. It's the it's that what I'm talking about most at the moment. What I'm excited about. What I'm seeing people get involved in is very much this. This coming together of of networks and compute in edge computing, and the network teams call it so. The network companies call it low latency computing (LLC). Uh, I I don't like calling that. I like to call it low response time computing because you can have a low latency network, but if it's a really bad application, it can have a really high response time. So yeah. I want low I want low response time computing. And so how that's going to change and modify how application architectures are full stop going forward is of massive interest to me and to my colleagues too. And so that's why you'll see us talk more as we go forward this year around edge computing and how we'll start to look at how you can get the VMware stack of virtualized networking, compute and storage in one hypervisor running much, 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 much closer to the edge. Uh, and then what we can do with that and what workloads we can put on that and how close to the edge we can get them. And we have a very strong IoT play. There's a open source project called Leota, uh which stands for Little Internet of Things Agent, which is a small Python package, which you can run on pretty much anything down to, you know, Raspberry Pis and light bulbs. Uh, and then a management plane for that as well. So you've got this Internet of Things platform as well. So you can say, okay, fine. Are all my things, cameras, scanners, whatever, are they all up? Are they all secure? Are they all patched? Which is a question that's very difficult to answer in most IoT Mm -hmm. infrastructures. So you take that, put that through to edge computing, take it all the way back, start to understand that you've got things like distributed network encryption, etc. The future application architectures are coming out of the data center. They're coming out of the cloud. So if you're looking at how to architect things in data centers, You're already sort of a few years behind where the thinking is now as to, okay, how do I now stretch that out again? How do I get my compute to be as as close to where it needs to be and and executing as fast as possible? That, for me, is really where the excitement in in the vision going forward is.
0: Are you calling a Raspberry Pi then a nano data center as long as it's connected to the VMware stack? I'd call it Pico and no,
2: we can't run VMware stack on it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty so cool. Is so is it an,
0: an extension of an application that takes something back to somewhere? As long as it's part of that application, we can call it a, a nano data center? Or how are you defining that?
2: I think when you... Wh- so what's a nano data center, I suppose, is what you're asking here, Nick, right? And I think yeah. that definition is down to the to the architect and the user as they're doing that. For me, the definition is somewhere where I have a globally consistent operations model. I think that's the best way to think about it. So okay. how far can I extend my existing infrastructure operations model or my application operations model without having to change it to do something different? So at the moment, if I wanted to go, so let's just say I'm working in a retailer and I've built a fantastic application, but I then want to go and run something in a branch, that's a major headache, right? Because typically the branch systems are completely different to the systems that I'm running in my data center. So I actually need to go and talk to the team to work out how I'm going to get this workload and how it fits into their world in the branch because the branch team are different to the data center team. You, you get where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Whereas actually what I'm saying is, well, what if I could get the stack that's running in the data center to be exactly the same as the stack that's running at the edge mm-hmm. in that retailer, right? So, yeah, I've got a small thing underneath the desk that's maybe, you know, three... Um, uh, three Intel NUX or three Supermicro 200s or whatever you want to call them with an SSD each in them. But on that cluster, it supports vSAN, you know, distributed storage. It supports NSX, so I can have encryption and everything else. And I can probably get about 15 VMs running on that. So, you know, one or two major systems, maybe some desktops and a few other things doing stuff.
0: That's amazing.
2: Uh, you know, and and at the same time, maybe I've got SD-WAN in that as well, because you'll notice recently we acquired VeloCloud. So if I can embed SD-WAN in that, and on the back of that simple box is an MPLS socket, suddenly you can see it starts to get really exciting. Okay. Yeah. And so now if I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to define the new, the new shopping system for my supermarket, I can say, okay, well, what I'm going to need in this is I'm going, to need this, I'm going to need some kind of thing running in the store. Well, great. That's just a VM you drag down there or it's a container that you just spin up because it's the same as running in the data center. And so that's the importance to drive to here. It's all about data operations and about that operations model and simplifying that and removing the barriers to success for applications. That's, that, that's where really sort of edge computing comes to to the fore for me. So yeah, that's probably where you get to. A, the minute you step out of that and you have to go to a different system, maybe to mm-hmm. to run an IoT gateway or something, that's probably yeah. where it stops. It stops, I suppose. And that probably makes a lot of sense. Hopefully for you,
0: that makes the world of sense. Thank you so much for that. That was no that problem. was incredible it's, to
1: hear. Actually. I mean, you know, what? I, I've always been a huge fan of VMware, and I mean, like, I've VMware was pretty much the only um, hypervisor that was able to virtualize a Mac successfully yep. at my house. Um, you know, you had to run a couple of things, but essentially, I'm running a Mac in VMware on a Windows mm-hmm. machine, and um, you know, it's it, it just works. And um, yeah, that, so let's let's take a segue. Let's take a segue. Um <laughs> let's 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 go to your car
0: your electric right, car yep. your
1: beautiful tesla and <laughs> how upset we are that we don't get them in this country and no they are coming. How, <laughs> and how you, you amazing should, your you one is. which one do you have and and why I've got a I've got a Model X oh that's beautiful uh, and I have a Model X
2: because you know, but on the first point you should be um you should be tapping your countryman on the shoulder hard to bring his fantastic invention home um but what, we, what what we have is um yeah the, the X was I, I'd always looked at the S but I'm I've always driven large four by fours as Nick one well knows Range Rovers etc so mm, very, I've been used very to very large it
0: four by fours very and large four by four just in fours. case you are listening to this Elon <laughs> come on home <laughs> <laughs> come on home quickly
2: yeah so. So uh, you know the X was and and the seven seats was attractive to me. I mean there, there's scenarios in in my lifestyle where having more than five seats is quite useful. So yeah, I was I was waiting for the X, and obviously to wait for the X was quite a long wait in the UK. They didn't arrive until December 2016. So you know, I was waiting till then. So yeah, but I it's it's. I, I hate to be a Tesla bore, and once you've sort of done it, you can very easily become a Tesla bore. But the, the simple thing is, it's one of those things that once I've driven it, you can't. Everything else just feels old-fashioned. And I've driven big V8s, and I've driven amazing, you know, sports cars, and owned cars of, of amazing types over the years. But everything now just feels a little bit old-fashioned compared to you know what I'm driving now. And a, and a friend of mine, actually an ex-Microsoft employee, is is head of uh, Tesla Western Europe, a guy called Georg L. And um, chatting to Georg, you ask him, you know, uh, you know I'm addicted to the, the the sound of a V8 or the rumble of a, you know, whatever. And he'll say, I introduce you to a new addiction. It's called torque. And uh, yeah. I always now say to my friends when they ask me about it, I go, it's going to be the most expensive test drive you ever have if you ever test drive a Tesla because you'll just want one. <laughs> and, yeah, there's a bunch of standard questions people ask about electric cars so far away.
1: No, 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 no. I'm happy with that. You know what? I know, I know, I know, I know it exactly. Uh, you know what? I, I prefer to get the passionate answer. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean everybody knows. And you know, like they're like, oh, but where do you charge it? And you know, why do you do this? Uh, you know, it's, whatever. The fact is, it's got this massive screen. You can control it with your iPhone. You can turn on the air conditioning. You can make it come fetch you. Um, yeah, that,
0: that does it yeah. for me. <laughs> I mean,
1: well, I don't I, care. i you know, I'll, I'll charge
0: it. I'll charge it wherever I have to. You know, Warren doesn't care the, about saving the planet. He wants his car to come fetch him.
1: That's right. With, yeah, with, true, with my but
0: iPhone.
2: <laughs> also, also the point when you can get to sixty mile an hour in two point nine seconds is also exactly. quite good too. But that, mm. that's that's kind of that's kind of fun. And a seven seater SUV. It's, it's, yeah, uh It gives fun. you. A, it, it 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 gives you. A, I, it's funny because um, a friend of mine on Facebook, who will remain nameless, was talking about you know Formula One. I've been a Formula One fan for a long, long time. I sort of he said oh, I was going to Formula One. I, I pinged him back and said, "Where's my tickets?" And he said, "Oh no no, you'll be looking for Formula E tickets then." And I just replied back, "Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. You aren't living in the future like me." And <laughs> I think when when you, when, when you it, it's weird, but you, you do feel like you know you, you, my, you're living and you're living in the future, and it, it it follows down. So my wife now drives an electric car. She drives a Leaf, which she absolutely loves. And my eldest daughter is about to pass a driving test. Hopefully in a couple of weeks' oh, time. My. And she wants an electric car uh, only because, one, she can fill up for free at home. <laughs> <It gives me laughs> an answer, really, but no, actually, do you know what? It's because they're simpler. And it's really intriguing because I went through this process of teaching her to drive, which we're still doing now. And We've had to get a manual car. And so I've had to go out and buy a manual petrol car so she can learn to drive in it. And it's only when I then got in it and I've not driven manual cars apart from on racetracks for a long time. And you start driving around urban areas in a manual car that you look across and you go, how utterly pointless is the gearbox? Like, why is it even there anymore? (laughs) And you realize when someone's learning to drive 90% of what they're learning to drive is, is how to stamp on that clutch and and move the gear stick without, you know, throwing you forward out your seat or whatever, when they change gear and being in the right gear at the right time and, and in an electric car, there's only one gear and it's always the right gear, you know, and, and just, it's, you sort of look at these things. So if you, even if you forget the ecological side of things, which is a whole separate and very long argument that can get very boring at times, um, just the driving experience alone is enough to sell people on it.
0: Joe, we want to be respectful of your time and really, if we had more time, we (laughs) would ask you more about what are you doing with the, the European commission, What are you doing with data centers? What's happening with Spectre and (laughs) Meltdown at at VMware? So hopefully within the next year, we'd love to have you on again. Well, next time I come to SA,
2: I'll try and find a way so we can hook up and do this in person.
0: How's that? That would be awesome, particularly from a a recording quality point of view. But before we let you go, (laughs) with clever editing, no one will ever know what happened on the show. But before we let you go, where would you like to be found? social oh, yeah. blogging platforms whatever simple.
2: at joe bagley on twitter so at j-o-e-b-a-g-u-l-e-y
0: simple stunning that, joe we want direct... to thank you so much for the time that you've given us today you've been very generous thank, thank you. you for your honesty thank you for the lack of hype and <laughs> we look forward to having you again no that was awesome been Yeah, yeah there, has to 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 up. Up.
1: there has to be a part there has
0: to be a part oh definitely definitely great stuff you can find me, Nicholas, on the Twitter, at Nicholas Blank, as well as Facebook and LinkedIn. Our blog at blankmanblog.com.
1: And you can find me, Warren, Today, uh, which is my blog. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at WarrenDT, and on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat to you soon.